Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Even when someone's dominating, there are still guys that are close that are able to catch up. If your if your level drops a little, their level raises, and that's what happened with Andy Murray. Andy Murray is someone that works extremely hard, has been committed to getting to number one in the world and and winning Grand Slams, and and all it took was a little bit of a decline in Novak. It wasn't like he went from I don't know from number one to number ten so quickly. He's still I think those two guys are still pretty far and above the rest of the, the rest of the tour right now. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. Happy New Year, everyone. It is our first podcast of 2017. Thanks for all your listenership and support. Last year, we're going to keep doing these, and uh, we may have a fun partnership agreement to announce in a few weeks, but for now, we'll keep that under wraps. We do, though, have a terrific guest. James Blake is going to kick us off. Apart from just turning 37, James will be coming to New York for the QQQ PowerShares event at the Barclays Center Saturday night. That's January 7th. He'll be playing with John McEnroe, Andy Roddick, and Jim Courier. James is, apart from being a former top five player, he's a tennis channel commentator, all-around good guy. I had asked for questions via Twitter. You had great questions to throw at James, and then we had some timing issues, and we actually did this interview before the questions came. So we'll do those next time we get James on. Meanwhile, we talk about the 2017 season, Federer, Nadal. We talk about some coaching changes, free-form conversation as always. But for now, let's bring him in from three hours earlier in the day on the West Coast, James Blake. I was thinking, you're our first podcast of 2017, so thanks for that. It's an honor. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to, happy to be honored. So let's let's talk tennis. I got a bunch of questions for you from uh, from readers. Most of them have to do with uh, your sharing a name with a dubstep singer. I suspect oh. that's 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 changed. I suppose that's complicated your life, hasn't it? Yeah, I just uh, it, it happens a lot now. I'll, I'll give my credit card or something like, oh my goodness, did you sing this song or did you? And I don't really know the guy at all. I don't know any of his music, so I'm. Uh, I'm a little clueless, but I just have to keep telling him, no, sorry, that's that's not me. Not only a former top five player, 
but a collaborator with Calvin Harris as well. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, I, I feel kind of bad. I, I realize that I look nothing alike, but people that are big fans, if they see me, they realize that, that we're not the same person. Or... <laughs> uh, he probably gets it too. So anyway, um, I'm thinking big, if big theme as uh, we are mere days away from the first major of the year. Return of Roger and Rafa, who uh, yeah. both, of course, took time off uh, at the end of 2016. How do you see each of those going? Well, uh, I'm excited, just like any other fan, to see to see what happens because you know those two guys that you know they were in their prime around the time I was in my prime, so I competed against them a ton of times, and it was uh, a lot of fun. And you know, I took plenty of losses, but it was uh, it was fun to compete against two of the best of all time. And you know, I think at this age, it's good for them to take time off and let their bodies really heal, and hopefully they've they've uh, gotten to that stage where they feel 100 percent ready to go. And I'm interested to see how they come back. Rafa, obviously, a lot younger, but he's seemingly put so many more miles on his body. And, you know, he, he, he plays such a physical style that everyone expected him to retire younger because of how hard uh, he worked for every single point. But um, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Roger at 35, it's amazing. He's still going to be out there playing and see if he's at that, that same level. And um, I hope he is. I mean, those are two of the nicest guys. They, they've really set the bar so high for every other athlete uh, and tennis players as being great champions and, and great role models and humanitarians it's uh it, it's it's going to be tough to see them go when they when their time really does come to an end on tour i always said it's not just that they set the bar high but they've made it so hard for everybody else if you're if, if the guy who uh you know if, if two guys who've won 30 plus majors between them are still decent when you're when you're ranked number 23 it uh it, it's a little conspicuous when when you're an asshole um, yeah. but, uh, I don't know. Can we swear on these things? All right. Jamie says we can swear. Great. We can swear James Blake. So now you can, uh, now yeah. you can really be yourself. Um, <laughs> so we go, go back to what you were saying before. Who, who do you think, uh, you know, we obviously know that, that Roger is, you know, four years older, but if, if they both had odometers on them, who do you think has more miles? Uh, who do you think has tracked more miles? Um, uh, that would be an interesting study, and I, I would probably say Rafa, just because of how hard uh, it seems like he has to work for so many of his points. And um, he doesn't get a lot of free points on his serve. He started to a little bit more later in his career, but playing so much on clay, you set up those points. You, you play longer ones. He plays defense so well. Roger, um, even though it, it, you know, it seems like it's easy, it looks easy by what he's doing. It's obviously not easy, but... Um, he gets a lot more free points. He was, he was moving forward a lot more, especially early in his career. And also, he doesn't play as much doubles. Rafa plays a ton right, of doubles right. as well. And along with playing doubles, he does well in a lot of doubles tournaments. So he just puts more and more um, sort of strain on his knees, on his back, on his shoulder. And uh, what about uh, that's our, our gold medal winner at the most recent Olympics? But I would, wouldn't you add practice also? Yeah, and you know, Rafa has been known to, to practice. You know, to put in those four or five, six-hour days. And I think almost all players at, at that top level put in those kind of days when they're younger. And as you get older, you start kind of waning and, and you know, you start what you maybe call practicing smarter and knowing your body and knowing how much you can sort of take. And it seems like he doesn't want to uh, ever dial it back from what I've heard. I, you know, I've, I haven't been on tour for the last three years, so maybe he has dialed it back. But it seemed like even when I was still on tour, he was, he was putting in hours and hours and hours on the practice floor too. What what's the deal with uh, the player who is ranked number two? And if I had told you six months ago that uh, Djokovic would be ranked number two, you would wonder uh, 
What what happened? Would, what what, what did happen? Got seriously injured because that seemed like the only way it was possible about six months ago. That's wait that that's a good point. Yeah, if you uh, so if, if physical injury is not um, is is not the cause of the, uh, you, you know you, you hate to say decline you don't want to over dramatize it. Um, sure. But you know the, the guy won, won a Master Series event and got to the final of the U.S. Open, but um, he he's not the Novak Djokovic that he was if we'd had this conversation a year ago. What What's your sense on that? Yeah, and and like you said, you don't want to over dramatize it because I actually don't think it's much of a decline. It's a it's a drop in his level by less than five percent, I would say. But it's just that Andy Murray has raised his level, and that shows you that even when someone's dominating, there are still guys that are close that are um, that are able to catch up. If your if your level drops a little, their level raises, and that's what happened with Andy Murray. Andy Murray is someone that works extremely hard and um, has been committed to, to getting to number one in the world and, and winning Grand Slams. And, uh, you know, it's really, I'm really happy for him to have achieved it. And all it took was a little bit of a decline in Novak. It wasn't like he went from, um, you know, I don't know, from number one to number 10 so quickly. He's still, um, I think those two guys are still pretty far and above the rest of the, the, rest of the tour right now. Right, um, right. And we'll see, it remains to be seen how Rafa and Roger come back and if Juan Martín Del Potro is healthy for the whole year and is able to compete with them, but it seems like those guys are are still at the you know at the top level, and it's not like Novak dropped that much. So I don't I don't count him out of of winning any of the slams this year. Our producer uh, Jamie can fix it in the post production. It's it's Sir Andy Murray from from now on. Ah, um, sorry. sorry. What's yeah. the uh, yeah we all we traffic in cliche occasionally in uh, in in this media arena. Um, something you hear with Djokovic. He's lost his aura in the locker room. Do you, do you buy that? Does that exist? Do, do other players genuinely think that they're um, this is a vulnerable or this is a this is a dented guy? I mean, does that it makes sense intuitively? But does that, does that actually exist? That concept? Yeah, I think a lot of guys in the locker room kind of grasp for that. They, you know, you you want to step out onto the court every time you play someone and think you have a chance to win. And you know, I played Roger, I think nine or ten times. And every time I played him, I wanted to think I had a chance to win. And, you know, so if you could pick on one thing, like, oh, he, you know, someone just took him to a tiebreaker in the last in the last match, and I've beaten that guy, so I'll be all right. Or, you know, I, I'm playing much better than I played last time I played him. I can do this. And I think you get that aura back and then just beating guys. You know, he's going he's gonna to go out and he's still going to, you know, those guys are all going to think they have a chance, but it's not going to change that his level is still so high and he's, He's so his defense is so impenetrable that he's going to be able to wear guys down. So, so if if Djokovic wins the Australian Open yet again, I mean his his run really since 2008 in Australia has just been a joke. If he wins in 2017, how many more majors is he winning this year? Um, so I'm going to ask Australia. you the. Uh, I'm warning you. I'm, I'm going to ask you the opposite question. He, he okay, w- if he wins Australia, I think he'll win. Uh, one more after that, too. And if he doesn't, which means he will have gone gasp three straight majors without a title. But, you know, I mean, I, I think not defending in Australia where he's played so well over the last decade. If he, if he doesn't win in Australia, how many majors is he winning? Uh, I think I'm going to stick with one. I'm going to say he, outside of Australia, he's going to win one out of, the, out of the last three. Majors won by players outside the big four plus Vavrinka. You think anyone gets on the board this year? Um, I'm gonna give 
a, a, a chance to Del Potro and a slight chance to round it at Wimbledon. Came Otherwise. Not bad. Yeah. Um, who's the top American at this time next year? At this time next year, I'm going to go with Jack Sock. Um, I think he's got a, um, you know, he's, he's on the rise. He's playing really well. Um, you know, he had an unbelievable end to the year, but how well he's playing in singles and doubles. Um, I, I haven't uh, talked to him or heard how he how he did in the off season. I talked to Troy Han a little bit, and said he's been working really hard. So I think that's uh, the right. He, he just continue to go with taking small steps in the right direction. So um, I think the big thing for him is managing his schedule. He played so many matches at the end of last year uh, with singles and doubles. I think he needs to start realizing that he has the ability to be a great singles player um, and maybe you know, curtailing a little bit of the doubles because he played so well in doubles, too. We talked to him a few weeks ago, and I, I think just just getting to the point where he could go through a year healthy and, and finish strong uh, is an achievement. But but I think you're right. It's just it's hard for these guys to play, you know, 60, 70-plus matches in singles and then also spend that time on the court with doubles. Um, let, yeah, let me, go, him, sorry, I go think ahead. he does it okay sometimes of using that as practice, but I still think it it, it, take, it drains you mentally too because you're you're so focused when you're playing on the doubles court too. That, that's what someone said. They said, you know, on, on the one hand, you know, court time is court time, but he said, you know, in, in practice, you're just it's mentally it's so different than when there's umpires and ball kids and a scoreboard and fans. And on the one yeah, hand, you, you spend an hour, you spend an hour, but it's it's a much different exercise. Did you did you find that too? Yeah, it's very different, and you know you can you can practice for two, three, four hours and and come off the court and not feel that tired. But if you play a match, even if you play a match at six two, six two, you're you're done in an hour and fifteen minutes. You feel it because you were focused on every single. Like to win six two, six two sounds easy, but it's not easy when you have to put that much mental energy into it. And so on the doubles court, you feel the same, especially Jack. He's you know he's a good guy that that is um, generally friends with a lot of his uh, his um, partners. So he really does want to win for them too. I think. Let's go back to Djokovic for a second, because you know this this is the this is going to be the first week of tennis for him, and certainly the first major post Boris. And I think to to most of us that haven't played, to most fans, I think there's still some mystery to the player coach relationship. How much yeah, is, how, think, how much does it even matter at this stage? Thirty year old guy, a dozen slams. Yeah, it's starting to matter less and less. And I remember when I got to that stage in my career um, that you've heard a lot of the same things. You've been on tour for so long that uh, it, it does. I don't want to say it's on autopilot, but you know a lot of the things, the right things you're supposed to be doing. You know, and if you're doing something wrong, you know you are. And it, it helps to have someone that you feel very comfortable with. I think he's had Marian Vida there with him for so long. That is, and I give a ton of credit to, to Marian for how well he's done with Novak and. Uh, sticking with him, you know, through Boris, through Todd Martin, through all the other, you know, coaches and super coaches and people that have been uh, on the team, the trainers, the nutritionists. Marian Vida has been a constant, and he's been so helpful and, and I think a calming influence on Novak all the time. So um, for Novak at this stage, I, I don't think it matters as much for a coach. I think it's about staying healthy and about him knowing all the things he's learned over the past 12 years or so he's been on tour. Remember, Federer had about a three-year window where he basically didn't have a coach. Granted, mm-hmm. his you know his his fiance was a was a top hundred player. I mean, granted, you know he surrounded himself with people that knew tennis. But 
Are, are you surprised that instead of going to these these staffs and as you say these super coaches and remember Raonic had three coaches last summer? <laughs> are, are you surprised that people haven't gone independent and just said, you know what, it's it's a lot of clutter. No one's teaching me to re-hit my backhand at, at age thirty. I'm just going to go with this alone. Yeah, I think it's tough to go alone just because it's it's kind of lonely out there if you're not if you don't have someone else on your on your team. And I know you can have. Uh, a nutritionist or a trainer or someone like that. But it, it helps to have someone else just that you can bounce tennis ideas off once in a while at least. With Roger, like you said, it may have been a little unique with uh, Mirka. It <laughs> was an excellent player in her own right, so he could talk to her about tennis and, and she could understand. And uh, So I, I don't, I'm not surprised that people haven't kind of gone independent or gone uh, alone out there. It, it's good to have someone um, in your corner uh, always. You have a nice relationship with Serena Williams, do you not? Yeah. yeah. Are you getting the wedding invite, James Blake? I don't know. I, I I don't think I'll make that cut. I'm not sure. We we do have a we had a Hopman Cup final together. We had a lot of fun. We've we've uh, uh, we've definitely you know had some some fun times while we were on tour together. Um, but I'm guessing that there's a, a lot of people that are clamoring for that invitation and. Um, I don't know if I'll make the cut. I, I hope I do. It'd be, I know one thing, it will be a fun wedding. She, uh, she definitely has a good time at a celebration, so uh, I hope I do. So if, if Serena's listening, uh, I'll, I'll be sure to email along or forward my address if, if, if you're looking for it. You don't even mind a back table. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't mind a back table. I think the back tables and the front tables will be a lot of fun at that wedding. Uh, what do you expect? For, oh, big weddings aside, fun weddings aside, what do you, uh, what do you expect out of her in 2017? I expect, um, you know, I said to a lot of people that, that um, you know, she's male or female. She's one of the greatest competitors I've ever been around in my life. So I expect her to continue that and, and still be a competitor. I, I know at some point, you know, it's only natural at some point her body is going to start um, showing signs of wear and tear and of fatigue and, you know, just that many years out on tour. But um, until we see that, her mind is going to be as strong as anyone else out on tour. So. Um, I'm excited to see how she can do it. She can um, get past Steffi, uh, the tie with Steffi for the Grand Slam titles, and uh, if she can reclaim number one, that would just be an incredible accomplishment at her age. I don't know if she's as focused on that because of her age that she probably needs to limit her schedule uh, to play her best at the big events. But I'm I'm excited to see it, and I, I'm I know she's going to be mentally she's going to be all there and ready for every single Grand Slam this year. Keep going with that. What do you mean? Because I, I, I think I've heard you say this on air, and it, I think it makes a lot of sense. But what do you mean when you say she's one of the great competitors you've ever seen? I mean, is that just at, at four all in the third set, there's no one I'd rather have my life on yeah, winning the match? What do you mean by that? It's it, Well, it, for her, to me, it, it goes down to practice and everything like that. Everyone has heard stories, the, the legends of Michael Jordan, you know, being up late and late and late to play checkers because he hadn't won a game. He wants to play until he wins. He wants to play pool until he's better than the person he's playing and, and find a way to win. To me, that's, you can apply every one of those to Serena. I remember, you know, often the men and the women don't practice together, but I remember we happened to be, I think it was we were at the ESPYs in L.A. and there was no one else in town, and we, you know, we were both going, so we went and hit. And um, I was just practicing with her. And, you know, in general, obviously just physically, um men are a little stronger, a little faster sometimes, and she was not listening to that. She wanted to do every single thing I did, every single drill I did. She wanted to 
um, compete every single way possible um, with me. And I, I was just so impressed that she was not going to quit. I was like, okay, you know, I'll, you take this one off, I'll do this one. No, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And she, and then I've seen her in matches, obviously, and there is, there's never a, there's never a fear in her, like you said, an aura in the locker room. It doesn't matter who she's playing. She knows she can win, and she feels like she's going to. I remember when we did play Hotman Cup together, um, I was playing Leighton Hewitt, and he was number one in the world at the time. And my coach is with me. My coach is very sort of reserved, and um, we talked about the strategy. We talked about that. And then she just came into uh, my little, like, dressing room, and she's like, basically, you're going you're gonna to kick his you-know-what, and you're going to go out there and do this and shoot. She didn't care that he's number one in the world. She just knows that, you know, she's on my team and she wants me to win. And, and I ended up winning that match. And she, you know, just basically told me, like, I told you you were going to do this. And every um, every single mixed doubles match we played, she had that same attitude that we're going to kick the crap out of these guys. And she didn't have any fear of going, you know, forehand to forehand with any of the guys or ripping it at them. She had just zero fear. And it's just, you know, like I said, male or female, that's, that's an attitude that I love to have and love to see in a competitor. All right, let me ask you two questions off of that. Um, one of them, with that, without going on to this this third rail, if you're hitting against her and you know there's there's a sheet on the other side, you you don't know the identity of the opponent, but that ball's coming off a racket and you're having that that hitting session. Who do you think you're playing against? I mean, is this a is this a great college player? Is this a doubles player? I mean, if if you don't know it's Serena Williams, just based on if, the ball you're being if, fed, what are you thinking? If you take out the movement, um, which is uh, so, if it's just hitting, you know, just hitting cross courts or whatever, right? Um, you could say that that's a, you know, that's pretty much a tour level guy. But it, then when you bring in the movement, it changes. Yeah, I mean, you know, when it, it's and it's kind of a silly discussion, but I think people are still interested in. I mean, the the other the two things I've heard when you make this this comparison are a the movement and b the action on the serve. So not necessarily yep. the miles per hour, but what the ball's doing. But, yeah, the serve is, is, is really the, the big thing. Why people ask me, I still get that question, like, did you beat Serena Williams? And it's, uh, it's you know, it's, it's always relatively relatively amusing. People are amazed if I say yes. I, I think I could. Um, <laughs> but wait, she's, but, but, <laughs> she's won more than 20 majors, and you never won. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think, you know, honestly, I, I think that you, I mean, one of the great things about tennis is you've got these, these two simultaneous events, and you have men and women playing together, and most fans are fans of men and women. It, I, don't, I don't think it's unreasonable for people to wonder... Uh, how one gender would do against the other doesn't should, shouldn't impact how we feel about equal prize money or anything like that. But I just think it's it's something that's normal for fans to wonder about. But you're, you're saying you're just hitting right. forehands. You're just hitting forehands, and you don't know the identity. That's that's a tour level. Those are tour level yeah, ground she strokes. Hits the ball. Yeah, she hits the ball um, as well as some of the guys out there. Um, and yeah, it's just when you add in the serve and the movement, it changes. And and I just want to go off on a tangent and agree on you on that it shouldn't take anything away from the equal prize money or anything like that because like you said people come to watch tennis and they see men's tennis they see women's tennis and they both help each other to promote the sport and so people are coming to watch the sport and so you know the, the equal prize money fight that venus williams has, has carried on from the legacy of billy jean king is something that uh, you know i'm uh you know i'm proud to have them both of them as friends and and people that are um you know fighting for equality and I'm you know happy to happy that they're doing that. You really want that wedding invitation, James Blake. Um, <laughs> let I'll me ask you uh, whenever Venus gets there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, wait, let, as long as you're going here, let, let me ask you a question. Um, I was just going to write about this, but let me bounce this off of you. That we we live in polarizing times, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. have uh, we've never been more divided on on so many issues. 
it strikes me that one thing that's interesting about tennis right now is that it may lack in in rivalries in a, in a McEnroe Connors, you know, even a Williams Hingis kind of way. It, it seems perfectly reasonable to like Murray and Djokovic, for instance. I think the same thing with Roger and Rafa. I mean, I, I don't think you know you you can't say I like uh, you know I, I like the Yankees and I like the Red Sox. You kind of have to pick. No one likes Duke and Carolina, but it seems pretty normal to me to say I like Djokovic and Murray. Is that something that tennis can trade on? I mean, do do you think there's any sort of equity there or yeah i think sort of like what i was saying is they're fans of the sport right so i think a lot of fans of the sport are big fans of just being great tennis so they see matchups they see um you know you're not going to see borg McEnroe anymore where you've got a guy that's coming in on everything as opposed to a, a baseliner because the styles aren't as contrasting but you can still have contrasting personalities um and i've noticed you know, in my little tennis channel role. And if I say something good about Roger, I get a lot of people responding to me about Rafa's better. If You're I say so something biased. good about Rafa, yeah, right. I get a lot of people responding. Exactly. And so there's, there's still, I think the fans have more of a rivalry than, um, than the players. Because <laughs> the players obviously <laughs> right. want to win, but the fans get pretty adamant about sticking to their guy. And um, I think it's interesting, and I, I do think there's a lot of people that can be the fans of the sport. And that's what I, that's, what I am now too, but I, I wonder if tennis can do anything with this. I mean, I, I wonder if they can't actively sort of market the fact that you don't have to pick a side, and there aren't these heated rivalries. I wonder if there's any. Uh, I wonder if there's there's any sort of way to to monetize that, or if yeah. there's, there's any equity there, yeah. or if that's just we we should we should hope we have rivalries because that's ultimately what drives interest. Yeah, that'd be interesting because I think for so long uh, tennis has tried to create rivalries and they've tried to create you know the next generation against the old guard and right, right. Um, Agassi versus Stamperis and things like that and you know you create those rivalries and that makes people so interested in in their differences. But um, yeah, I wonder if they could go a completely different way. That's, uh, that's a good. Uh, I'll be interested to read your article. Maybe, Zig, uh, get tennis, Zig, uh, where uh, uh, tennis executives to think outside the box. That is a stretch. Um, you are coming to uh, you are coming to this Cowtown this weekend. Yes, I am. You want to uh, you, you want me to do the plug or you want to do it? I'll do uh, it. I'll, I'll do it for the Power Series QQQ Cup exactly. uh, in Brooklyn at Barclays. I'm I'm excited to, to be playing in in, uh, in the Barclays Center. I've been to a Jay Z concert there, and now I'll be uh, be sort of on stage. So it'll be a, a lot of fun playing against Andy Roddick and Don McEnroe and Jim Curry are going to be there. So. Uh, I'm uh, I'm excited to be a part of it. We have a lot of these throughout the throughout the year, throughout the country. But for me, this will feel like a home match, and um, I think it's, it's going to be great for the crowd. You got Jim Courier, who lives in New York. You got Andy Roddick, who's won the U.S. Open, and and John McEnroe, who's a who's a native New Yorker. So hopefully, the crowd will be pretty uh, pretty energetic for us. And Connecticut's own James Blake, Mets fan, yeah, tri-state area resident. I um. McEnroe doesn't really care if he wins these things or not, right? That's just a myth. <laughs> oh man! Uh, speaking of competitors, he's still uh, still as competitive as ever, and and loves playing, and and really is getting angry if he's not playing his best, if he's not playing well. He's he's just you know uh, we all have been in locker rooms that are a little uncomfortable because someone just lost and they're upset, and you want to stay stay away and. Just, just to be clear, you're you're talking about power shares locker rooms. You're not talking about locker rooms from. Uh, exactly. Well, we've we've all been in the locker rooms on the ATP tour where that happens, and you just want to stay away. But now on power shares locker rooms, 
it's still the same way. When Dom comes in and he didn't play well, he's he's genuinely upset. Yeah, so, someone said they went to uh, they went to watch one of these, and, and McEnroe you know, was playing to the crowd and got upset, and maybe it was in his contract to throw a fit the way he did in 1984, and someone had to say, no, 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 no. That's, uh, that's still how he yeah. rolls. He, he might play the first time, you know, all that, you know, joke with the, with the umpire, but then when it gets serious, he gets serious. <laughs> what, um, when, when people go to these events, what, what level of tennis should they expect to see? Well, it's still a pretty good level thanks to the fact that the format makes it so that we only have to play one set at a time. <laughs> so we can, we can keep it up and, and still play some pretty good tennis. And it's, just, it's maybe not quite as consistent. We'll play some great points. Um, but the, every single shot as focused as we used to be, it, it might not be. Um, but the actual, the, sort of the top level, when we're playing some really good points, it's, it's still pretty good. I mean, I can still go out there and hit. Andy, I know, can as well. We can hit with some of the guys on tour, and we can, we can still you know, put, on a good, uh, you know, put on a pretty good performance. We're just not going to do it day in and day out. Tennis, the sport of a lifetime. You and I both have to go, but I want to share some, uh, some bad news with you. Uh-oh. I hear a vicious rumor. You and I are going to be pitted together at Indian Wells on Tennis Channel set again. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, that's probably my most fun tournament of the year. Getting it's, a, a, it's a good time, right? The morning, yeah, the morning recaps and, and previews uh, with John Wertheim sitting at, sitting at breakfast there in the, uh, in the lounge and, and getting caught up on everything tennis-related. I still have scars from where we're kicking each other under the table. Um, this, uh, th- this event, Saturday night. January 7th at Barclay Center, as you said so eloquently, this is the QQQ Cup. McEnroe, Roddick, Courier, Blake, and I will also say, and you, you mentioned this, Barclay Center, great, great venue. Just yeah. world-class venue. Terrific place to, uh, really to watch a sporting event. Um, all right, this was fun. We're going to rope you into another one of these soon. Absolutely. Anytime, John. Good luck Saturday. We'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks all for right. having me. See you, James. All right, that's this week's SI Tennis Podcast. Guest was James Blake. He was terrific. We're going to have him back, and again, we will pepper him with the questions that you guys sent via Twitter about his NYPD relationship, about athletes and tennis players taking uh, politically active stances, about social justice, about Serena Williams, all sorts of good questions. We'll get to it next time with James, and you heard him. He's happy to do these whenever we like. Uh, That does it for this week. We'll have another guest next week. Then we're off to Australia. So next week we'll preview the Australian Open. I don't think the draw will be out yet, but we'll talk some Australian Open tennis. We'll try to do a few of these in Melbourne, and then we're back at it. Again, I'm John Wertheim. Guest was James Blake. Our producer, as always, is the talented Jamie Lasanti. Thanks for listening. Keep the suggestions coming. We'll do it again in seven days. (laughs) 